0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only master classes on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. so thrilled uh, uh eric to have you on the podcast you know we we followed you for a long time and and you're well known in canada um, uh, for a lot of the things that you do and we certainly know how busy you are so so thank you again for joining us i'm curious maybe for some of the listeners who may not know you as well as uh, as we do tell us about where you grew up and and where you did your training and how you ended up where you are now
1: yeah, I, uh, I actually grew up, so I, I'm currently in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is kind of in the south central part of uh, Pennsylvania. It's the town where uh, Hershey's chocolate comes from. If you uh, like Hershey's chocolate, I, that's great. If you don't like it, I apologize. It's not the world's best chocolate, I, I swear. Uh, but I, I grew up about two hours uh, northeast of here in a small town called Scranton, Pennsylvania, which uh, many people know because it is the uh, setting for the NBC show, The Office. Um, so, uh, so I grew up in Scranton. I, I stayed home for college. I went to a small Jesuit school there called the University of Scranton, and then I came all the way here to Hershey to do medical school, and then I stayed here for residency. Uh, I did two years of research in the middle of my residency, uh, also here in Hershey, and then I uh, made it all the way to Cleveland for my fellowship. Um, I spent some time at university hospitals with uh, Dr. Jeff Marks and uh, Jeff Ponsky. Uh, I was lucky enough, you know, I, I went there to work with those two guys. I was lucky enough to work with both Mike Rosen and Yuri Nowitzki while I was there as well. And then, uh, you know, the plan in leaving residency to do fellowship there was to come back here to Hershey. So I've been here as a faculty member at uh, Penn State Hershey Medical Center since uh, 2012 was when I started as faculty. Um, so uh, I'm going nowhere fast as they, uh, as they say.
2: That's such an, a neat trajectory, and and we've uh, we obviously know some of your the mentors that you you named on there. They're like the who's who of laparoscopic surgery and abdominal wall reconstruction. So that's an amazing training pathway, and and uh, mentors that you have. You know, obviously, the, one of the reasons that we wanted to bring you on the show was that you have such a neat career, and you've managed to blend some disciplines in a way that I think not many people have in their practice. You have this neat blend in your career of combining both uh, a, a full surgical practice with abdominal wall reconstruction and minimally invasive surgery, as well as surgical endoscopy. How did you kind of get into this career path and and what motivated you to go down this kind of unique uh, trajectory?
1: Yeah, I, I, I... You make it sound like it was planned, and I have, uh, I had, it had some, you know, I had some forethought. I, I remind everybody that I am in many ways the Cosmo Kramer of surgery. You know, I, I have fallen backwards at times into, into good luck. And, um, you know, I, I went to Cleveland specifically to work with uh, Drs. Ponsky and Marks to become a surgical endoscopist. I mean, that, if you ask me in my heart of hearts, like, what am I? You know, I'm a surgical endoscopist when I was interviewing, there was a guy there named Mike Rosen, who I, I had literally never heard of the guy. I didn't know who he was. I was there for Marks and Ponsky. I was there to be, you know, Ponsky's fellow. Um, and, and you know, Mike was an abdominal wall reconstructive surgeon, and, and, and I had done some of that in my residency training, but my experience was, you know, mostly with, um, complex, uh, post-trauma patients, uh, getting open external oblique releases, um, heavy use of biologic mesh, patients who were, you know, poorly optimized, lots of complications. And I, I I actually said coming back from that interview that I would be willing to do those kind of disaster surgeries and put up with the year of wound complications and fistulas, which was, again, my experience with, with those kinds of surgeries if I got to spend time with Mark Samponsky. Um you know, but when I got there, obviously, uh, Mike and, and Yuri had joined in the year um, in between my interview and the time that I started. You know, they, they turned hernia into a, a science, you know, I mean, among other people, but, but those two for sure were, were turning it into its own specialty at the time. And while I learned all of the cool surgical endoscopy stuff that I think a lot of people know me for, I also left with this understanding of like how to do a good abdominal wall reconstructive operation. And when I came back to Penn State, there was really nobody uh, who I had trained with left who was doing those operations. And what I saw was an opportunity to build both a surgical endoscopy program, you know, and a complex hernia program. My boss at the time said, I mean, point blank, he's like, Eric, you can't be Jeff Marks and Jeff Ponsky and Mike Rosen and Yuri Davitsky all at the same time. Like, it's just, it's not going to work. You need to pick one of these things and kind of focus. And I, I, he's a naysayer and he's the first person to admit that he's a naysayer. And so I just kind of ran with it. And I said, look, the practices balance out very nicely. Um, Those open abdominal wall operations, they're physically very taxing. That You spend all day doing, you know, one operation. And then the next day I can... Take, I can do, you know, eight to 10 smaller endoscopy procedures. It uses different muscle groups. Uh, You stand differently, you use different equipment. And so if I was sore one day, the next day I'm using different muscles. Uh, You know, from a financial perspective, um, a lot of the things that I do endoscopically are unlisted procedures. You know, if I close a leak endoscopically, there's no CPT code for that. And while, while I can show value because my partners like the fact that there's not a leaking sleeve anymore. The department is like, so you just do diagnostic endoscopy and a little bit of fluoro, you know, where's, where's your productivity? And so the hernia stuff um, definitely has high RVUs and high reimbursement and the endoscopy stuff doesn't. And so for many years, that balance of mental, physical, financial, taxa- you know, taxation on myself, it, it balanced out very, very nicely. And I was able to then grow over the course of time, those kind of two separate surgical practices, but none of it was intentional. It just,
0: it just seemed to work out particularly well. Well, That's such a a fascinating voyage and and a great insight. You know, just speaking personally, I, I fuse hepatopancreatobiliary and trauma, which is also, um, you know, initially met, um, with a lot of naysaying and, and, uh, and I understand that, you know, the, people pick e- each of those jobs for very different reasons and ge- generally hate the other. And it's really, really neat, as Amir said, how, how you fuse that. Um, I'm curious, how do you define surgical endoscopy? Because I think that maybe that 30,000 foot term is, is really quite confused and certainly uh, means different things to different people across the continent.
1: Yeah, you know that's a that's a that's a really great question, and I thought about it. You guys sent me, you know, sort of the list of things we might talk about, and I, I thought about it overnight. And I, I don't know that I have a very good answer because, I mean, ultimately, any time a surgeon picks up and uses uh, an endoscope, that really is, you know, surgeon performed or surgical endoscopy. And even within in my own division, you know, I have um, there are seven surgeons within my division. Um, all of my partners utilize flexible to some extent. But the um, the degree to which they use it, even within our own group, varies, you know, quite dramatically. Um, my uh, many of my bariatric colleagues uh, use it, you know, for on table endoscopy only. They do a lot of diagnostic endoscopy. They're inspecting their work. They're using it to leak test. That's obviously surgical endoscopy. But um, you know, other people look at it and say that's just kind of routine surgical practice, and everybody should be doing that. And, and I agree with that opinion. Um, You know, what I think sets surgical endoscopy apart from sort of medical GI endoscopy is, uh, you know, a few things. Number one is a high level understanding of surgical principles and surgical anatomy. Um, Everyone can understand normal anatomy and um, good GI folks understand uh, abnormal, you know, understand post-surgical anatomy and even the common variants of abnormal post-surgical anatomy. I think where people who sort of specialize as surgeons doing endoscopy can excel is kind of the understanding of abnormally abnormal anatomy, right? Being able to realize when something is outside the the normal patterns and and be able to figure that out endoscopically. Um, The understanding of surgical principles um, and where you can kind of push boundaries is also, I think, very helpful. Um, because I am my own surgical backup for many of the things that I do, uh, I'm willing to, to push the boundaries some. Um, I have surgical colleagues who send me patients who they already understand that somebody is looking at getting another surgery if, if I can't fix the thing that they're asking me to fix. And so that gives me a little bit of freedom to, to push the envelope some. Uh, it also allows me to partner very nicely with my surgeons. You know, we, I, I, we speak the same language, obviously, and uh, we oftentimes share patients in a way that I, I don't think you get from a medical GI consultant uh, m- a majority of the time, let's say. Um, if I meet a patient on uh, my colorectal surgical team service who has a leak, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk with that patient. And the message that I'm sending them and speaking with them about is very similar to what they've already heard from the colorectal surgeon, right? So patients are getting message repetition. This is the problem. This is the textbook answer to the problem that you have, and this is what my colleagues are already doing. You are getting best care for this process right now. These are some options for managing this endoscopically, and I'm going to, with your permission, try these. That language, that backup, that repetition um, it allows patients to understand that they are getting high-quality care from the person who, you know, is already managing their problem, uh, and B, that, that there are other options that we can offer, you know, as surgeons. Um, I oftentimes tell people that I'm that, you guys know what a pilot fish is? That's that, those are those fish that live on sharks, that like keep the sharks like clean, like they keep bacteria from growing in their eyes and stuff like that. In many ways, my surgical endoscopy practice is, you know, I'm a pilot fish, I keep the surgeons swimming and moving efficiently, so they can go out and, like you know, do do what sharks do. Uh, but at the same time, if I wasn't around, you know, they'd they'd have they'd have some problems that they would have to deal with. So, um, it, it's surgical endoscopy is different, you know, from person to person and institution institution institution. All politics are local, uh, and, and so you're going to get a different answer from different people. But for me, you know, I think at the end of the day, anytime a surgeon is picking up a scope whether it's for diagnostic purposes in the operating room, preoperatively, postoperatively, post uh, or doing therapy, you know, that's surgical endoscopy. It's, it's only surgeons who are uniquely situated to do endoscopy routinely in all three of those circumstances, pre-op, intra-op, and,
0: and post-op. Oh, I love how you frame that. That's, that's a, a wonderful description, and it sounds like an amazing practice. I'm curious, maybe just to go a little bit deeper, what would be your top most common, say, five procedures-ish uh, that, that you do in your local surgical endoscopy practice? And then what are some of the ones that maybe are a little bit more exotic?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, common things happen commonly. We, we do a lot of uh, preoperative endoscopy for our bariatric program. You know, it's a high-volume program, and so we do high-volume just pre-op diagnostic endoscopy. Uh, it's helpful, though, because, again, the, the language, when I do a report, Uh, for a pre-op bariatric patient, the language that I'm using is all aimed at the person who's going to read that report, which is my bariatric surgeon. So they've got a good understanding of exactly how big the hiatal hernia might be, you know, exactly, you know, where the, where the, uh, you know, the gastritis is and what we biopsy. My partners and I also do a lot of just diagnostic colonoscopy. We have a, you know, a, a partial community practice at a local hospital that we just absorbed. And, uh, the surgeons there were doing a lot of high volume colonoscopy, and uh, th- that's important. Um, you know, not so much for me and my partners. You know, if, if, if I didn't do colonoscopy, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over it. Uh, but for our surgical residents and our trainees and our colorectal fellows, having access to those high volume colonoscopies is super critical. Uh, for for my fellow in particular, um, you know, who is a minimally invasive fellow, I I can't teach you how to close a leak at an ileocolic anastomosis if you can't safely and efficiently, you know, get to the ileocolic anastomosis, right? And so we think about those diagnostic procedures um, as procedures themselves, but for me, the repetition and just doing those things over and over and over and understanding the motions blindly, you know, it's all muscle memory at some point. It is critical as we move on to, you know, more advanced procedures. Um, My next most common procedure is probably uh, endoscopic management of leaks. It's a thing that our group in particular is um, sort of known for locally. Um, you know, we are a tertiary care medical center in the middle of a cornfield. And so we have lots of small community hospitals that surround us. And in We see leaks like anybody else might see, except that if they come to our practice or they're referred to us, we try to manage them endoscopically. Um, And so that includes, you know, a variety of different tools and techniques. Um, Our group preferentially tries to close defects if they're closable, utilizing over-the-scope clips or endoscopic suturing devices. Uh, We offer endoscopic vacuum therapy for leaks that are uh, less well-controlled. you know we do long-term internal drainage procedures with double pigtail stents for more chronic leaks and fistulas so we we offer you know the most of the tools that are out there for leaks are in our armamentarium what that means is that when if you come to us with a leak where you know it's not kind of hammer and nail sort of philosophy you know leak gets stent is what happens at many places if you have for example a leak after a bariatric operation at our facility leak gets diagnostic endoscopy with on-table fluoroscopy and a comparison with the preoperative cross-sectional imaging, and then kind of a timeout in the operating room for us to draw up the anatomy of what's going on. You know, where is the leak? How long has it been here? How much contamination is there outside? And then we go to our, you know, list of therapeutic options, and we pull the one off the shelf that we think at the time is the right answer for the patient. Um, What also comes with that is a, you know, a plan for follow-up. You know, this is not we're going to bang a clip on it, and if it works, great, and if it doesn't, then just go back to the surgeons and get surgery. If we try to manage a leak and it, it fails, uh, or when we re there's still a leak, we're going to move on down the algorithm uh, to our next, you know, our, our next step um, in the series of steps that we can offer. So that, that understanding that multimodal therapy at the first go-around planned Uh, Endoscopic reintervention with the second look, endoscopy down the road. Um, And then sometimes, you know, we know for, you know, for endoluminal vacuum therapy, obviously that's two scopes a week for a couple of weeks while you're here in the hospital. So that plan to do the therapy over and over and over is, uh, is I think, part of, you know, managing leaks endoscopically. Uh, More exotic procedures that we are actually doing in a little bit greater um, volume include actually maybe something in your wheelhouse, Chad, endoscopic management of uh, gallstone disease, uh, but percutaneous management. So we, uh, about two years ago, started offering a procedure that is, I think, a little more commonly done by interventional radiologists in some places. I think the group in Toronto uh, recently put out a series of taking, you know, colidocoscopes down drain tracks into percutaneous uh, drains in the gallbladder or the biliary tree. And uh, we've begun to offer this as a uh, more regular service for people who have uh, cholecystostomy tubes in and who have been told that they are no longer candidates for any surgical intervention. And, you know, so their options are live with a drain that gets changed for a while, uh, which most people really dislike. Uh, Pull the drain and hope you don't get cholecystitis again, which is probably a bad idea. And, you know, we have some internal drainage procedures that my GI colleagues offer, like using lumen opposing metal stents to make an intentional uh, stent-based fistula between the gallbladder and the duodenum. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I like the duodenum a lot and I really don't like putting holes in it. And if you're so sick that you're not going to tolerate a gallbladder surgery, I I think that if that process becomes a problem either for bleeding or for leak you probably have a more mortality on your hands. And so these are really high risk patients. Um, you know draining these patients percutaneously is is pretty straightforward. My interventional folks do it with a little bit of sedation on people who are fully anticoagulated. I mean they're 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 pretty amazing at getting drains in these folks. If they can get a drain and an upsize it then we can easily take a small docoscope down the drain tract and spend an hour under sedation um, in some circumstances under No anesthesia whatsoever. I've had an entire conversation with a guy about the restaurant scene in Cleveland, comparing the 70s to the 2000s while removing gallstones from the gallbladder. As as sort of niche as that procedure sounds, once word gets out that you're willing to do this, uh, people find their way to your your office. One of of my former lab residents sent me a picture. He was in uh, an outpatient clinic with our emergency surgeons the guy came in for a gallbladder surgery with a drain in place, but he uh, had a little note that said, Percut- so we call that procedure pebble, I guess I should say, percutaneous endoscopic biliary lithectomy. And so that guy had a little post-it note uh, on his uh, on his paperwork that he brought in. It said, pebble, Dr. Pauli. And the resident said, how on earth could you possibly know about this? And the guy said, uh, oh, the farmer who lives next door to me said that uh, uh, he had one and uh, that I should ask for it too. And it's just like, you know, word of mouth advertising amongst the farmers locally, I guess, is uh, is going up for
2: this procedure. Yeah, you know, you've made it when uh, when the farmers are talking about you. <laughs> yeah, you know, That's and, awesome. and, it,
1: and it, it it's funny. I mean, listen, we get people sent to us for that procedure and we look at them and we say, you know, sir or ma'am, you're totally fine to get a gallbladder surgery. And we just, we just, I mean, I'm a surgeon, so we just take out the gallbladder. But we oftentimes meet people who are extremely, extremely ill and uh, are not going to tolerate really anything else. Um, uh, you know, one of the people who comes to mind was on full dose anticoagulation and antiplatelet agents. She has a very small stent that my neurointerventionalist put somewhere deep in her circle of Willis. And they were like, she, her blood pressure cannot go down. She should not get anesthesia. And they were like, she probably shouldn't even really be NPO for that long because even the dehydration might make the scent go down. And I was like, okay. So she was also another patient who was awake uh, while, we, uh, while we cleared out the gallbladder. And um, these, these patients are amongst my happiest patients. I mean, to learn that you don't have to live with this drain in your side for the rest of your life and that you don't have to go in every six weeks for a drain change by IR you know, these folks are immensely happy and their quality of life goes up a lot. Um, my IR folks are also pretty happy as well because again, on I mean, these people, when you have a, a large quantity of them coming in for drain changes, as straightforward as a drain change is, it, it takes up time from other procedures that maybe are a little more urgent. And so it, you know, it, we can save patients time and effort and energy and also save a lot of energy on the medical system. It's probably, probably worth doing more often.
2: That's, that is fantastic. And one note I'll just make is I've seen your pictures that you draw of, like you talk about taking a little time out and drawing a picture of people's anatomy. And I'll I'll post that in our show notes. It's, it's really quite superb the way that you have that the whole anatomy drawn out and then you just pick the tool that's meant for it. I mean, the one big question I have with regards to your practice and, and all the amazing things that you do is, you know, there is an aspect, an element of training, um, that always is a question when people talk to you about your practice and and kind of, you know, there's discussions on between you and other folks on Twitter. Um, you know, I was thinking recently of the, the discussion about lap CBD explorations, for example, and so, sort of not surgical endoscopies, but along the same lines, you know, um, like how many of these procedures were you doing at, when you were a fellow? How many of these procedures did you have to kind of figure out um, once you became a staff and, and how does that training aspect and, and the, you know, case numbers and things like that, how does that play into all this, especially, you know, when we're, you know, you're, you were trained by surgical endoscopists, not necessarily endoscopists or GI folks. And so, you know, how does that whole interplay of training and especially training with surgeons as opposed to uh, the GI folks, how does that all kind of work out
1: yeah, you know, it's a great question. and and um, I, I was fortunate enough that I, I a lot of my early flexible endoscopy training was in the lab uh, when I was a research resident with my GI colleagues, uh, because we were working on, as as many folks were at the time, natural orifice surgical projects, right? And um, what what really made me fall in love with, I think concepts within flexible endoscopy was that, uh, we were in, in the lab, you know, doing um, cholecystectomies on pigs, you know, transgastrically, right? And uh, many times I was the most qualified surgeon in the room because it was me as a third-year lab resident working with the GI folks who have no formal surgical training beyond medical school. And so I, I got to do some of the endoscopy with them. I got to watch the maneuvers, the thought process, the techniques – but at the same time, I was also on the other side kind of doing the surgical stuff, oftentimes with a laparoscope in place and the ability to kind of see the tip of the endoscope and at the same time, see what the person is doing with their hands to make the tip do that really, you know, solidified. I think a lot of my understanding of how endoscopes move in space, right? A lot of a lot of the problems of uh, laparoscopic and endoscopic surgery, you know, these are image guided procedures. Um, there are things happening uh, that are not on the field of view, right? You can see your instrument tips open and move and rotate, but how your hands are moving and what they're doing is, is behind the field of view. And so people are creating um, and constantly remodeling mental roadmaps of, of how things work. Um, I, I'm good at doing that. I, I think primarily, uh, I tell the story, I, I teach a lot of radiology too, and um, I, I learned all of my anatomy uh, when I was in high school and college because I worked as an x-ray file clerk and the guys in the file room I'm sorry the uh, the guys who were in the radiology group that I worked for knew that I wanted to go to medical school and so they thought hey like let's teach them anatomy and so I would hang up the films because they were actual actual films back then and then they would show me like this is a liver this is a this is a kidney and this is how they relate to one another and by the time I w- was ready to graduate I-, I could I could do some basic, diagnostic stuff by reading films. Um, It was kind of like the organ grinder's monkey, you know? I mean, like he's not really playing music, but like sort of playing music. Uh, But what what that forced me to do though, was my understanding of how organs relate in space was all based off of two dimensional pictures that I was kind of putting back together three dimensionally when I got to the anatomy lab. And so I kind of learned it the wrong way around. And so my ability to create mental roadmaps, I think, is maybe a little higher or maybe a little more advanced than some other people. So what that meant for me was as I was learning endoscopy, it really, it felt very second nature to me. You know, I understood that things were happening behind me that I needed to be aware of. And if I understood those things, I could kind of do it. Now, you know, the surgeons that I trained with had a very good understanding of the surgical anatomy and the surgical principles and the techniques. But what I, you know, I, I, in my fellowship training, I did have the chance to work with several of the medical GI folks as well in Cleveland. And um, you know, the, they're just watching how they move and how they think about what's going on with the scope. It's just a little bit different. But at the same time, um, you know, it's obviously the same tool that you're using. And so you can pick up little differences here and there from how people are, are doing it. Um, the words they use are slightly different. Uh, What what I think surgeons need to get out of a training in endoscopy uh, is two things. There's this big debate, obviously, about volume-based competency versus sort of skills-based competency, right? Those two things, you know, the Venn diagram of those two things overlap. Nobody is proficient after, you know, 25 upper scopes, right? But do you need 200 upper scopes to be proficient and safe? You know, probably not. But if you're going to move on and you're going to be, a, you know, sort of a therapeutic endoscopist, you got to just bang out diagnostic scope after diagnostic scope after diagnostic scope. And and I was fortunate enough that after I left the lab, and had this cool understanding of of what an endoscope can do, I went to our VA medical center, which uh, did you know a lot of smaller surgeries, but also the surgeons there ran the endoscopy unit. And I basically just told my chief resident. I have no desire to do any surgeries for the next two months while we're here. If that's cool with you, I'm going to go to the endo unit. She was like, "Yeah, I'll do the operations, and you go do the scopes. You're an idiot." And I just, I just with the with the surgeons there, just did diagnostic scope after diagnostic scope, upper and lowers, and um, that's really where that skill set kind of solidified. Uh, in fellowship, you know, we learned, I did a lot of therapeutic stuff. I'm I'm trained in ERCP. We were doing a lot of poems back then, but many of the things that I currently do, especially all of this endoscopic management of leaks, we did, you know, very small amounts of. Endoscopic suturing devices were still in a first-generation mode. Um, We were actually trying them in in colons in a, uh, um, prospective clinical trial to make sure they we wouldn't perforate the colon while we were suturing with them. Uh, over the scope clips existed, but we didn't have them. And so, you know, a lot of the things that I do on a very regular basis have been worked out in the meantime. It'd be no different than if I told you that, you know, we had a new way to, to you know, do a laparoscopic colon surgery, right? Instead of medial to lateral, lateral to medial, I'm gonna teach you the, the, the bottoms up technique, okay? It's just a. It's if you understand laparoscopic surgery and you understand the colon, you can put those things together and kind of kind of build it up. I'm in my career as an endoscopist. I'm going to learn something new the next week, and the next week, and the next week because we have new tools and new new devices available for things on a regular basis. So that's the other part that I really do love is that this is a. This is going to be a lifelong you know learning process of new things. I, I'm personally looking forward to flexible endoscopic robots, which is really, you know, the next thing that's gonna kind of hit the market here. You know, endoscopy is hard because of all of those mental modeling things that you have to do, Uh, you know, your eyes and your hands are connected. Instruments only work, you know, in and out of the plane of the field of view. So the ability of a device to go in and triangulate with eyes above the hands, hands that can articulate and roticulate with some ability to oppose tissue and work 90 degrees to the field of view, is going to revolutionize how we do a lot of the surgeries that we think of as uh, surgeries. You know, if we can save the organ but remove the cancer, I think people are going to like that concept. And, uh, you know, it's going to be surgical endoscopists who are uniquely situated to do it. You know, we do the surgeries now. We already do robotics, many of us. And we, you know, have access to flexible gastroscopes. You know, we just kind of need the, the robot to help us uh, with that minimal access to portion of the
2: procedure. I think that sounds fantastic. Um, you know, the the last sort of question on this sort of topic is, you know, you, you're definitely a surgeon's best friend. I could totally see how, you know, your, your colleagues in the surgery world would just absolutely love having you because, you know, you're saving someone potentially a laparotomy, for example, you know, with an enterocutaneous fistula uh, and a big surgery, you could potentially save them that huge operation with all the associated morbidity. Um, But how do your GI colleagues feel, uh, you know, about you sort of operating within their space? I know certainly, um, and uh, I like your phrase, all politics are local. Certainly I've noticed here, in Canada, there is a lot of trepidation uh, from sometimes from our GI colleagues about even training surgical residents, right? Like, you know, we spend our, our rotations um, training with our uh, GI colleagues to learn how to do scopes. And, uh, you know, most of our the GI uh, folks are happy to train us and love to train us and love having surgical residents around. But sometimes they're like, well, we don't want to train g- um, general surgery residents, So how does that kind of interplay happen um, at your institution? And what advice do you have for people who are interested in developing a surgical endoscopy practice?
1: Yeah, you know, it is a challenge, right? And, And there are, you know, territorial issues and patient management issues everywhere you go. I think at the end of the day, what most people have in their heart of hearts is the desire that people get high quality endoscopy, right? This is I hope not about them versus us, but about what is best for the patient, okay? And we might disagree on that. But at the end of the day, I hope that we're keeping the patient, you know, as the forefront of why, like, why do we have arguments over who should do endoscopy, okay? Um, You know, I I have carved out a a niche that nobody really wants. Nobody wants to manage leaks and fistulas, okay? Um, You know, this was advice that I got from Mike Rosen, which was advice that he got from his mentors, which was, find an area of surgery that like nobody really wants to deal with and you'll have patients all day long and you can become an expert in something pretty quickly you know this is this is a field of surgery where there are no elegant surgical solutions and that's something that i tell patients right if you open up a book of surgery you get some antibiotics and you get a drain and you get some tpn and then we wait a whole bunch of time and and then we come back and if we need to do a surgery we do and so there's this Huge space in the middle there, where we're just waiting around, and, and what can we do in that time frame? Uh, what what I do in terms of leak management is not something that I think most gastroenterologists, at least in my place as well, want to deal with on a regular basis. And uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. These patients are extremely time consuming. Many of them are not uh, stable or fit to be scoped in an endoscopy uh, unit. So they need to be managed in an operating room. Um, sometimes the tools and the devices and the things that you need to do these procedures are end- endoscopic tools, but also some surgical tools, right? So, you know, endoscopic vacuum therapy. You know, if you're going to do that, your endo unit has to stock the vacuums. you got to get them over. you got to have needle drivers and sutures to, to construct the device because there, there's no currently commercially available version. So... If you're gonna do that, you've gotta, you know, have access to some surgical tools and equipment. And, and for me, the best place to do that is the operating room. Um, these are a highly litigious group of patients. And I mean, not just my group of patients who leak, but in general, patients who leak and have post-surgical complications are more likely to be involved in lawsuits. And there's good literature from the bariatric, you know, literature from the colorectal literature to support that. And so, like, if, if you asked me just, as a, by the way, hey, would you be interested in doing something that's really complex, uh, that's gonna occupy a lot of your time in uh, a patient who's extremely likely to, you know, sue us and the institution? I think most reasonable people would say, like, I'm not super interested in doing that. Uh, but as I've done more and more and more of these, I think the main things that are helpful, yeah, we can, I, I can't close every week, all right? but we can make almost everybody better in some fashion. Sometimes that better is just an understanding of what the process is. Sometimes that better is just me coming along and and reinforcing to the patient that they have a problem, that their surgeon is managing that problem completely appropriately, and that I have nothing to offer from a scope perspective, but that they're being well cared for. It's just that reassurance. It's it's a, a second free surgical opinion about the problem that really helps, uh, I think patients understand that like, I'm, I'm not happy that this happened, but I am glad that, you know, Dr. So-and-so is taking good care of me and I've got a second opinion that says that. Um, but, you know, as you said, Amir, for the people who we who we endoscopically close, these people are exceptionally happy. You know, many of them were referred to us being told, you need a surgery. Um, there's there's a, a patient who I remember very distinctly Uh, who was referred to me by one of my former uh, co-residents, who's a bariatric surgeon. And uh, he had done a sleeve on her. And uh, two years or so after the sleeve, she was getting a thyroid operation. And uh, after her thyroid surgery, she started having these really weird fevers and wasn't feeling well. And they were trying to figure out, like, how is this endocrine related at all? And they eventually imaged her because she was complaining of some abdominal pain. And they found a big fluid collection around the sleeve staple line. And uh, they sent her to me as a potential chronic sleeve leak. Interestingly enough, we actually published this in the Bariatric Times a couple years ago. Uh, They had put an NG tube in her during the uh, thyroid surgery because she said, I have a lot of reflux, and they were concerned about her aspirating. And they actually perforated the sleeve with the uh, NG tube. I mean, the, the hole was straight past the EG junction, straight into the sleeve, right above the staple line. And it was a straight up just NG tube related perforation. But she came to me having been told, you have a chronic leak, uh, you're going to need antibiotics, uh, you've got a drain in, it's going to be there for a while, you might need TPN for a while. And it was it was close to the holiday season in December. And like she was just absolutely dejected that she, you know, thought her surgery was going to be done and she'd be recuperated for the holidays. And here she was with like a drain and like a pick line and a bunch of other stuff. And I remember scoping her and looking and going, this isn't a chronic sleeve leak. This is a NG tube perforation. Like, look at this. And we closed it. We took her drain out and we pulled her pick line before she left. And she was just like, I don't understand. You know, like this is totally the opposite of what I was just told. And I, what I said was what you were told was 100% correct. These are all of the right maneuvers that you need for a sleeve leak, except it's not a chronic sleeve leak. This is an acute process. We just managed it endoscopically and you're good to go. And she And she left. I mean, she was with us for like I don't know, 18 hours overnight, we transferred her, did the procedure and sent her home the next day. So for some of these patients in whom we do these kind of, you know, one and done procedures, it's, it's remarkable the difference in, you know, in, in their perception of what they were expecting, which is kind of the standard stuff versus what we can offer.
0: Oh, that story is amazing, Eric. I think you need to come to Western Canada and work, uh, work, for, work, work with us up here. We'd we, we love it. I, I was wondering if for, for some of our listeners, and, and I don't just mean trainees, I mean, I mean all of us, could you give us sort of a, a verbal uh, framework of your approach to anastomotic leaks in general? How do you, how do you initially look at those patients and, and what sort of uh, pathways might they go down?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the first part of the pathway is one that I think we as surgeons all know very well, which is patients with hard surgical signs go to the operating room and get an operation, okay? Um, I, what I would say is I think fortunately, you know, with modern practice of, of surgery, many leaks are identified very early. These are people who have a low-grade fever or mild leukocytosis who get appropriate imaging and are diagnosed with a small, you know, early leak. Um, so once we're sure that they don't have, you know, a hard surgical sign, uh, we take them to the endoscopy unit. Now, the basic principles are that the leak has to be within reach of an endoscope, okay? Um, so that's, you know, roughly ligament of trites uh, versus, uh, I mean, depending on what part of the colon was resected, you know, we can obviously reach ileocolic anastomosis. Small bowel anastomosis, you know, kind of remain an area where it has to be a chronic issue because we can't really reach that. So a JJ leak after a bariatric operation is not one where we are capable of of kind of managing endoscopically with our currently available tools, unfortunately. But that being said, most anastomoses that are leaking are within reach of what we can do with a a scope. Um, Basic principles are to start with diagnostic endoscopy. So we start with a small diagnostic scope, The smallest, shortest scope that will reach the distance is what we try to use. We want something that's, you know, super maneuverable, that can look around corners. Um, We do these generally in the operating room and generally with, uh, not generally, always with carbon dioxide insufflation. Uh, You know, our anesthesia colleagues at this point are pretty used to us doing these kind of ridiculous things. But we always have a discussion with them in our safety timeout that this patient has a hole in some organ. And we are going to be insufflating with carbon dioxide. And that if they have any issues with respiratory pressures, peak peak or plateau pressures going up, hypoxia, they got to let me know because there are things that obviously we can do to fix that. We can simply decompress. If I need to stick a needle in the abdomen to decompress the abdomen, we can, you know, we can do that. These are all things that we learn from, you know, from palm procedures, right? Um, Patients are always positioned for us to use fluoroscopy. Uh, it's, it's really in in the, in the marriage of surgical knowledge, flexible endoscopy skill, but radiographic interpretation that we're really successful. So before I scope anybody, I take a look at that CAT scan. I read the op notes that I know what surgery did this person do exactly? How does this person make their anastomosis? And if I don't have the op note or they're being transferred to me, I talk to the surgeon directly. I mean, we always try to talk directly to the person who did it. Tell me. Not just like, this is a iliocolic anastomosis. How do you make your anastomosis? Which way are the limbs? Where do you put sutures? Tell me what you did. And then we use the CAT scan to build kind of a pre-procedure roadmap and then we scope and we've got our endoscopic view and then we inject contrast. And that contrast injection comes in the form of uh, sinus tract injection, um, direct injection via the endoscope, we'll inject drains to try and figure out where stuff is going and we'll use small you know, ERCP catheters to investigate little you know little nooks and crannies and staple lines to see you know what, what may be leaking. Uh, then we're going to outline you know what is the exact problem. Um, this is where you know Amir said he put a picture up. This is where we stop and draw the picture. This is the anatomy. This is the leak. Uh, this is what's going on. Our group uh, has a uh, sort of a, a group think or a policy, I guess, of if the leak can be closed let us try and close it today. In order to do that, I think the main principle that we look at is, how much, um, how much infection and contamination are we gonna orphan on the other side if we close this? If there's a drain, the answer is it doesn't matter, right? Uh, so long as we don't um, catch the drain with a stitch or with the clip, uh, we'll just leave the drain there to kind of manage whatever is left over. If there's no drain, Sometimes we go out and we wash out the cavity, um, decontaminate, suction out all the air and carbon dioxide, and then, and then we'll close. Again, in some of those patients, the worst case scenario is they get an abscess in the area where the leak used to be and need a percutaneous drain put in. In um, some people, if that can't be reached with a percutaneous method, you know, I tell them if I had to go back and take off the clip and go into the abscess and leave an internal drain, I guess I could do that. I worry about it a lot, but I've actually never, I've actually never had to do that. Um, If we're gonna close it, we think about what's the best closure tool. And that's based off of what scope are we using? Where are we located? Can we take the scope out and put a closure device on? Or are we kind of stuck here and we need to use through the endoscope, you know, methods of of closure. And so that'll tell us like uh, of our four or five closure tools, which one's the right one for this patient. Uh, If it can't be closed, and sometimes they can't be closed because of contamination or chronicity, we talk about is this a person who we should internally drain, who we should stent over with like a self-expanding metal stent, or we should do endoscopic uh, vacuum therapy. Um, You know, the beauty of all of these things is if we can reach it there once, uh, we can reach it again generally. And that means that none of the things that we do are necessarily permanent. You know, if I put a clip on and it fails and the patient needs a surgery, we go back and we take the clip off so that when surgeons are firing staplers, the anastomosis uh, you know, it can safely be created. I warn every patient that we can make them worse by doing this. Theoretically, I could make a leak worse or I could take them from a situation of a stable controlled abscess to something that's uncontained. But we've done several hundred of these now and that it's just simply not the case. You know, Nobody in our series of these procedures has gone from stable, contained leak situation, okay for endoscopy, to this warrants urgent surgical exploration because of something that we did. We have found some patients who, when we scoped them, we kind of looked and said, holy cow, this person has gross peritonitis and this is not manageable endoscopically. These are folks who are, you know, immunosuppressed and and it's not obvious how sick they are when when you're there doing it, but good news we're in an operating room and uh, we have surgeons here, not only doing the procedure, but who own this patient. And we simply say, hey, we're doing a scope on this person and and they have, you know, peritonitis. Um, I show a video that I have of a patient who had a total gastrectomy and who had a leak from the EJ anastomosis. Low grade white count, low grade tachycardia, low grade fever, not overtly sick. And when we scoped, I mean, the anastomosis on the left-hand side was mostly missing. And I found a little pocket and I kind of went into the pocket and I kind of navigated. And then I realized I was kind of along a paracolic gutter. I went down a paracolic gutter. And then suddenly I was free intraperitoneal and there was just gross contamination everywhere. And uh, I called up the surgeon team who owned that patient. and said, guys, like, listen, I'm sorry, but like, I can't fix this. I want you to come and take a look. And they said, yeah, all right, so let's get some stuff. And they were calling for tools to do a laparotomy. And I said, we don't need to do a laparotomy. And they said, this guy had a to- open total gastrectomy 14 days ago. There's going to be adhesions everywhere. We can't do this laparoscopically. And I said, you can, because I'm already intraperitoneal and I can actually show you where to put ports in. And so we've got videos of, of endoscopic guided laparoscopic port placement for a lap washout. And then we placed drains and then we sent over the patient. And so While I couldn't manage the infection, uh, we were still able to make it a a less invasive procedure to manage that problem. So even when we fail, you know, just the anatomic understanding of what the problem is and sometimes these endoscopic laparoscopic procedures, I think still have some patient uh, benefit, but you gotta know when to say when. Nope, like we don't got them. I mean, they just, they they weren't widely available, so.
2: We definitely have over the scope clips, but it's, again, it's one of those things where like, you know, as a general surgery resident or a general surgeon, it's not something you're necessarily seeing every day. So I don't know that all of our listeners will know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in our we, we have several different closure devices that we use endoscopically. Um, through the scope clips are small individual clips that provide some mechanical compression. They're very commonly used for GI bleeding. Um, they're useful as radiographic markers. You can clip a And I use them a lot when I'm putting a nasogastric tube or a jejunal feeding extension in place. I put a little suture loop on the end and I clip that suture loop right to the mucosa. Um, They're nice because they go through the scope. So if the scope is there, you can leave the scope there and just pass them right down the instrument channel. The which is, means you don't have to move the scope. They're widely available. Every endoscopy unit has these. The downside is there many of them are not approved for full thickness closure because they just don't get very big bites, uh, but they also uh, come off very easily. And that's both good and bad. If you put it in the wrong spot, you take it off, but they don't have a lot of mechanical closing force. Uh, over the scope clips are much larger compressive devices that uh, are mounted on the end of the scope with a cap attachment that looks like a, kind of rigid plastic hood. And these devices are, they're nitinol and they're kind of sprung open. And when you uh, work a a deployment mechanism, it pushes the clip off of the cap and then the nitinol makes it spring closed. Um, There's two versions on the US market. One closes in kind of a stellate pattern right to the center circle. And the other one closes like a, it looks like a bear trap essentially. Uh, it kind of springs open and closed just like a bear trap. Uh, Those are nice because they are A, approved for full thickness closure. They get very deep bites of tissue, Uh, but that also makes them extremely hard to remove, and if you put them on wrong, you can't really work around them. You got to take them off, Um, and removing them um, is really quite challenging. There are devices that are made to remove them by breaking them into pieces, but Even still, it takes about 45 minutes in some circumstances to dig out, you know, dig them out and get them off. Uh, We have two endoscopic suturing devices on the market. Um, These work very similar to the um, endostitch device that many laparoscopic surgeons use. You know, it's a a needle with a suture kind of swedged onto it that kind of shuttles back and forth between uh, two opposing portions of the tool. And uh, what makes this nice is it is a needle and thread. And if every laparoscopic stapler in the world broke tomorrow, surgeons would still be able to do anastomoses because we all know how to sew. And that's really what makes these unique is if you can sew it, you can do it, right? Um, the downside is they're very challenging to learn how to use because you know, you've got suture everywhere, you've got a field of view that's somewhat limited. You know, it'd be like suturing if the laparoscope was essentially tangled in the suture the entire time. Uh, they also take a, a little bit of working space to be able to, to work. You know, the swing arm has to open and close. And if you don't have room for it to open and close or the hole is in a very small nook or cranny, the, you can't get the bites that you want to get. But their, their universe, the universality of, of suture is really what makes them, I think, excel. Um, we have uh, a, a, the newest device on the market is the device that is basically small helical tacks and they screw into tissue just like a, a laparoscopic tack that you might use to secure mesh uh, but run between each of the tacks is a three zero 0 proline suture and so you can essentially it, it passes down through the instrument channel so without taking the scope out you can essentially pass this device down and you can kind of rivet four little rivets with a string in between and when you pull it, it opposes it opposes tissue. Um, it, do, it, it doesn't get very deep bites of tissue, and it's primarily indicated for closing, let's say, a, a colonic mucosal resection bed so that you're not leaving a massive ulcer. You can actually close those fresh tissue edges, but we've definitely been using it for more challenging locations. If I can't, if I can't get the jaws of a, stape, of a, of a uh, clip to open, or it's so far in a corner pocket that my Ovesco cap can't, can't actually even get in there, this device can get right down in, and you can kind of spot rivet very small areas closed. So we're we're kind of learning where that fits in our uh, in our armamentarium. So those are kind of the the workhorses of our actual uh, closure uh, tool set. Uh, all right. So this is the uh, this is the video that I was uh, mentioning. So you know when we're talking <laughs> about managing leaks, I said you have to be comfortable kind of getting out into the leak cavity, and so. The video that's playing the blue is the actual sleeve lumen and the yellow there is the leak cavity. So this is us taking a an ultra slim 4.9 millimeter scope out into the leak cavity and we're doing you know some drain management. You know we want to put the drain right next to the leak before we close it and obviously that cavity is pretty heavily contaminated so we'll get out there and we'll kind of wash that cavity out. Now this is uh this is the other video which is uh um, this is a patient who does not have a drain in their cavity yet. And so I mentioned earlier that, you know, if there's a large amount of contamination, I can't really close the leak without managing that leak cavity. So just like interventional radiology would place a percutaneous drain in with some guidance, this is what we do here. We've got endoscopic and we've got fluoroscopic guidance. So that's kind of a, the endoscopic view of a percutaneous drain being placed into a cavity. And this is a, you know, let's call it a medium size pretty well-contained cavity. Uh, obviously, some cont- cavities are uncontained. So this is that patient I said who has gross peritonitis, uh, you know, day 14 from a, a total gastrectomy, EJ and leak. I cannot fix this endoscopically, but this is the patient who my partner said, well, we'll just, you know, kind of open up the midline again and we'll do a laparotomy. And I said, look, just just get a trocar in. And if you get a trocar in and take a look with a scope and you can't find any place else to put ports, then fine. But there's a laparoscopic port going in. Somewhere I've got this entire video, you know, you can see the endoscope from the laparoscopic side and the laparoscope from the endoscopic side. And it's, you know, uh, it's kind of fun to see those views, but we placed three or four trocars. This patient got washed out, got some brains put in, and he's actually like four years out now from his uh, cancer surgery and he's uh, doing well. So you know, did not have to get another operation for the leak, just needed that washed
2: out, you know, uh, which was done successfully. And just for our listeners who might be, who might've missed that, there's literally a video of Dr. Pauly (laughs) with the scope and all this small bowel that you could see in the video just sitting there in front of you. So uh, clearly you've been able to push the boundaries a little bit, because I think my heart would have stopped. I would have needed some metoprolol for my anesthetist (laughs) anesthetic machine. (laughs) The last thing that we wanted to chat with you, and it's been just such a wonderful conversation with you today, Dr. Pauli. So thank you so much for joining us. The last thing I just wanted to t- touch on briefly was um, fistula management. So obviously I'm a colorectal fellow, so got to bring this in somehow. Um, you showed us some great examples again. And again, if you wanted to pull up those videos, that'd be great. Uh, of you managing colovesicular fistulas, again, with the same some of the same techniques. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, vesicular and colovaginal fistulas obviously um, are a challenging problem. Many of these folks uh, are older; they're they may be ill. Uh, a lot of them have um, already had a surgical intervention, right? You know, you you caught the vaginal cuff in your staple line, and uh, you know you got a brand new surgery there, and the person's got a got a problem. Uh, so we, you know, again, if we can reach it with the stoke, then we certainly uh, will try and manage it endoscopically. All right, so this is a patient who has a colovaginal fistula. And this is actually a flexible gastroscope that we've placed in the vagina, okay? And the reason we go in the vagina is this is a patient who's had a hysterectomy. There should really be no outflow to the vagina, I guess inflow, and uh, there's a hole. And so we can place a wire through that defect. That means that when we do our... Flexible sigmoidoscopy, as you see us doing here, we can find that wire. I'm not looking for a minuscule hole near a staple line, or I'm not looking for, you know, which diverticulum in this entire colon filled with ticks caused the problem because that's very challenging. Diverticular processes are amongst the hardest that we manage endoscopically because they're very hard to find. So once we have that wire, you can actually see in the center of the screen here is the defect that this is coming through. It is a pinpoint opening. You would never ever have found that looking at just the colon. But by using the wire and by advancing our, this is, we're using an over the scope clip in this video, by advancing the over scope clip, essentially over the wire, we can find that area and we can get a clip on this uh, with, with you know, some ease. Um, you know, we typically ablate fistula tracts because they're chronic processes that are often epithelialized. And so we have the ability to do that from the vaginal side as well. And you know we're using some imaging here to show that the that the defect is closed. Now, cola vesicular fistulas, uh, similar process, and this is where teamwork is important. I have a uh, uh, urologic colleague who just loves doing this stuff the same way that I do. He is a percutaneous master, and, and his name is John Knadler, And I, I like working with him because every time I work with him, I see a new tool or a new device or a new thing. You know, uh, I'm very jealous of his lasers and all sorts of stuff but he is kind enough to scope all of these patients with these colo-vesicular fistulas for the same reason. You know The bladder should have three holes in it, two ureters and one urethra. He's occupying the urethra with a scope. He can find the two ureters and the third hole that doesn't belong there is the fistula. So here you see uh, they're using a, um, uh, a cystoscope to intubate over a wire to intubate that fistula and then essentially advance the wire, you know, along the fistula tract using fluoro to guide uh, into the colon, okay? So he's doing the same thing that I do for a gastric sleeve leak, only he's doing it from the uh, from the bladder side. And then we'll, we'll do the same thing here. We're taking a uh, over the scope clip here with a cap attachment. We're gonna find that wire from the colon side. We're gonna grab it. Now, the cool part here is Oftentimes the configuration of where these fistula are located uh, is very challenging. Um, if you think about how the bladder and the uh, colon relate to one another, especially when the bladder is full, these fistula are often on the inside of the sigmoid bend. Very challenging to reach that with a scope in a kind of end-on position to do therapy. But that, what, he, what he can do is he can actually deflate the bladder And he can actually use his rigid scope to kind of push the bladder one direction or the other. And I can use that guide wire to kind of pull the colon one direction or another. And between the two of us utilizing tools that are inside these organs, we can actually manipulate and make the angle of approach for closure a little more reasonable. In the inset, you can see there's the clip on the inside curve of the sigmoid colon right on top of the bladder there. And he's uh, now going to use a... uh, neodymium laser and he's gonna laser ablate the fistula tract. Again, this is stuff that's in their wheelhouse. They use those lasers to carve through the prostate and break up stones and he, he wields it like a, like a Jedi. So uh, it's always good to have somebody who can you know work a scope. We do a lot of dual scope procedures. Um, if we have somebody with a gastrocolic fistula, for example, from a PEG gastrostomy complication, Oftentimes, we need a scope in the colon and a scope in the uh, GI tract at the same time. Um, you know, the fact that I don't do flexible cystoscopy in my practice is sort of limiting, except I've got a great colleague who is interested in doing these procedures, and so we play very nicely in the sandbox. He and I have one, I think, coming up, gosh, maybe next week. Um, we've got a guy with a uh, anastomotic fistula to the bladder, and uh, he was already treated once at his local hospital. They put a Amplatzer plug in it. They they got wire access and they put a an Amplatser plug in. And uh, I'd never seen that or read read about anybody doing that before. We don't know where the plug is except when I talked with the patient. I said like, Hey, you. We don't know where the plug is. It may be there. It may not be there. We may need to remove it. And he's like, I'm pretty sure I I peed that out. I go really. He goes, Yeah, about three weeks after the procedure. I, I thought I was passing a kidney stone. This thing came shooting out. I told them about it they said yeah maybe it was maybe it wasn't so I think he actually urinated out his,
0: his, his fistula plug. Wow that's a that's a wild story you, you know Dr. Polly, we can't thank you enough for for spending the time with our our audience uh, both faculty and, and trainees alike you've no doubt expanded our horizons and given us some really great things to, to talk about and you know, I think we could chat for hours. You know, even moving beyond the the medical side of things and talking about the culture of innovation and, and development and the economics of it, and and maybe down the road we could invite you back to explore some of those those areas. Would be great to have you.
1: Yeah. Be happy to. If you guys want to talk about cheese, let me know. That's my fourth.
0: Well, you know exactly. We, we were going to close with that, and and one of the questions we ask, uh, we try and ask all of our guests really, is if you look back in your in your career um and, and sort of think about coming up as a trainee what sort of advice would you would you have given to yourself at the time with the insight you have now and and i, I was hoping you would you would comment on your love of cheese somewhere in there
1: <laughs> well I, I i'm not sure how that specifically relates i guess the main thing that i would uh, tell you know younger me is to realize that like you know the plans that you have are probably not the way it's going to turn out you know i was originally going to be a um family practice doctor. And then I was going to be a private practice a vascular surgeon. Uh, and then I was going to be a flexible endoscopist. Uh, but then I wound up learning, you know, hernia surgery from some people. And so a lot of folks know me as a hernia surgeon. So, you know, I just, you know, kind of, I just kind of go where the road, you know, has taken me. Um, uh, I think the other piece of advice that I always tell folks, at least in terms of research is uh you know, if there's a project that you can do and there's nothing else going on, you know, probably do it. I, uh, I wrote this paper when I was a fourth year resident and uh, it sometimes winds up on Twitter. It's this thing with like liver anatomy, like the little liver fist thing. And, uh, you know, it's just how to do segmental liver anatomy. So like, I, I learned that from my surgeon guys. And I was like, this is amazing. And other people should know this. I can't find this anywhere. It's not in a book. It's not in a reference. And they said, well, it's just a thing that we teach each other. So they said, why don't you write it up? So we wrote it up. Uh, About two years later, I got uh, an invite to write a paper from a guy uh, who uh, is an anatomist. And he said, hey, I'm an editor at the Journal of Anatomy. And I read this paper. I think it's really clever. Would you be willing to write a paper on on liver anatomy? And I said, I mean, I was the first year attending at the time, and I had a lab resident named Ryan Yuza, who is now a, a flexible endoscopist and hernia surgeon in Wisconsin, at University of Wisconsin. I said, Ryan, look, I'm just starting as faculty. You're in the lab. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have any projects for you right now. Like, we're just getting going. Do you want to do this? Like, I think it's kind of stupid. And, and you and I are not liver people. But like, he's asking, it's an invited paper, like, let's just do it. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's just do it. He did an awesome job. It's a really great paper. It reviews liver anatomy from like, you know, cells all the way up to macroscopic, including that little liver fist thing. And he handed it in and we added it to our CV and we kind of moved on with life. Well, that same guy, the anatomist who invited us to do it, has moved on in life and he um, is now one of the section editors at Gray's Anatomy. And about, I don't know, six years after we wrote that paper, he came back to me and he said, hey... You may not remember me, but I asked you to write this liver paper and uh, I'm now uh, at Gray's Anatomy and I looked you up uh, because I remember you wrote this thing and I thought it was really good and I see that you're a hernia surgeon. Would you be willing to write the uh, abdominal wall chapter for Gray's Anatomy? Of course I would. I mean, obviously that's a yes. But like that opportunity came from something that amused me that I was interested in. Followed by something that was maybe not so amusing, but I felt was at least something academic for us to do while we were getting our lab up and running, into something I think, you know, that like my mom is actually really proud that like my son wrote a Grey's Anatomy chapter, right? So uh, opportunities sometimes come disguised as, you know, work. Uh, I'm not saying say yes to everything. You obviously have to have a pocket full of nose here and there for things you definitely don't want to do. but. Don't just say no, because something, you know, isn't exactly how you want it to be. So be open to new opportunities.
2: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CamJSearch.